You're listening to a special episode of Escape from Plan A. Today, we talk about the documentary Finding Yingying with director and producer Jenny Shi. Finding Yingying is about the life and death of Zhang Yingying, who was a Chinese visiting student at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She was kidnapped from campus, raped and murdered June 9th, 2017. Uh, the film Finding Yingying is especially poignant because it focuses on Yingying herself um, as an extraordinary, talented, caring person who loved music and wanted to solve climate change. Um, it also focuses on how her death impacted the people around her, like her parents, her boyfriend, her colleagues at UIUC. And it's a great film that really challenges traditional crime narratives, like whose stories are being told and whose stories maybe deserve to be told instead. Finding Yingying is produced by Brett Huffman, Diane Kwan, and Jenny Shi are at Kartemquin Films in association with Mitten Media and Nika Media. It premieres December 11th, 2020, and you can find more information at www.findingying.com. So in this episode, uh, we kind of talk about the film, and then Jenny comes on about 20 minutes into the episode, and she talks to us for about half an hour. And if you like what you hear, please rate us and like us, Escape from Plan A on your favorite podcast platforms, and donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash planamag. That's patreon.com slash planamag. Escape from Plan A. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host today, Diana, and I have with me Dave and Ken. How's it going, you guys? Hey, what's up, Diana? A little bit about myself. I'm, I'm a 37-year-old Chinese-American, born and raised in New York City. Uh, I work as a property manager in commercial real estate. And it, it's a field dominated by white Republicans. But growing up in Chinatown and going to school, the sty and NYU, I, I didn't feel like a minority as I do now. Actually, you know, after Trump won in 2016, I was looking for like a community feel. And I I'm happy that I came upon Plan A because it gives me that that community feeling and also access to amazing ideas. So I love you guys and super excited to to be on this pod. I'm also I'm a father of two young kids, so future Sino-American relations are very important to me. As I mentioned, I'm a Chinese American, so that hyphen part is key, right? Because I feel like I'm a bridge, and I feel like you know a bridge between two cultures. So. Yingying's story in particular resonates with me because I want to explore and sort of bridge that gap between the uh, American experience and the uh, Chinese experience. So uh, that's me in a nutshell. Well, how about you, Ken? Hi, everyone. My name is Ken Chong, and I teach uh, Asian religions and philosophy at Bethlehem in Bethlehem at Moravian College. So uh, I know Dave since high school. We went to Stuyvesant, and we also went to NYU together. And I was reflecting with Dave yesterday how Growing up in New York City, we are in an Asian American bubble. So I, I came to New York. I immigrated with my parents when I was six years old. 
So I went from a kindergarten that was 100% Chinese and Asian to a elementary school that was 90% Chinese to a middle school that was maybe 80% Chinese to a stuyvesant that is about 70 something percent Asian. And it wasn't really until college that I spent a significant amount of time interacting with people that were not Asian. And now that, now that I'm teaching in Bethlehem, it's maybe 3% Asian. And so I, I've slowly kind of changed my awareness on my identity as Chinese American, as Asian American. So Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, is that right? That's right. It's about an hour north of Philadelphia. Yeah, that's super white. Absolutely. I moved out because there was a Trump sign a few houses from where I, uh, where I had an apartment the first year living there. I just, it wasn't for me. Wow. Good for you on moving. Yeah, so uh, Dave suggested that we watch um, the movie Finding Yingying, which comes out December 11th and um, can find out more information on their website, findingyingying.com. I think we'll put it in the show notes. Like we've previously done a uh, episode just on her case and kind of like the violence Asians in America face. I was wondering why you guys were interested in the film, like like it's a really good movie, but you know what made you want to like do an episode about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I could uh, jump on this because I, I kind of uh, was the one that shared it with y'all. Um, so, so I saw. I think I saw it on Next Shark, and like I'm, I'm usually all about like uh, like art about you know Asian experience and specifically like Asian American experience. You know, because she she was a Chinese international student, but here in america um so I, I was just attracted to that uh it was it was created and directed by uh, uh an asian uh another chinese international student um and i just i just wanted to explore that i mean it's it sucks that it's such like in the context of such a terrible brutal uh murder but like what i really loved after watching the movie uh the doc is just how how wonderful um the director Jenny Shi, how she portrayed Yingying and was able to sort of peel back the curtain uh, uh, on the family and, and Yingying herself's motivations, uh, you know, even though after death, uh, but through her her diaries, I, I thought that was that was really beautiful and and it was it was really uh, enlightening to see. So I got a lot of joy out of that. Yeah. So I mean, I didn't know this before watching the movie, but Jenny was actually classmates with Ying in China. Like they both went to Beijing University and she was in Illinois. She was studying journalism in the same school. This is like a new thing with all the international students coming to study and just the rise in China as an, eco an economic power is that these students, like people from China are able to tell their own stories in English you know, and to just like have control of that narrative. And that's something that we haven't really seen before. Even the reporting of this case on the news, it's just kind of like, oh, this, this girl was, you know, whatever. But it's always filtered through the white lens. And this was not, this was deeply, deeply personal to Jenny. And like, she was able to express that to all of us. It's a game changer, I think, in terms of how we see ourselves. 
I totally agree. Um, that's what like is so amazing. I'm so impressed with Jenny, like that she was so poised and was so clear with the story. It, it was just so beautiful. And the fact that like she's um, so young, I don't want to be ageist and stuff like that, but like, man, she's better than me <laughs> at, at, at storytelling. So I, I got to give her all the props. I was going to say the personal part is really important for uh, that piece and, and why I appreciate the film. I learned that she was a translator for the Netflix documentary, American Factory. So speaking to Diana's point about Chinese internationals uh, being able to produce media on Chinese-American relationships, it's really important. And, and for the personal part, so I teach a course on film and I try to get my students to create film and see that it's not an objective lens that when even documentary makers are telling a story, they're not reporting journalism. And so that Jenny is able to put herself and read the voiceover and kind of tell her relationship with the family and how she was in, involved in translating and documenting this, this process. I, I think that's why I really like the film. And there's these moments I was talking to Dave about this yesterday that shows such careful filmmaking. When she was filming the mother cooking in China and the mother asked, asked her, why, why are you filming cooking there? And Jenny said this and left this in the final edit, which is this is to show kind of your life here, your everyday life in China and compare it to your life in the US. And so for me, that's really important in filmmaking to, to show slice of life and the fact that Jenny didn't hide her involvement. And that's why I appreciate this about this film. Yeah, she really puts a lot of herself into the movie. There was that part where she talks about how one night she was like new to the US and feeling really lonely and it was cold and she was like waiting outside and then someone uh, said they were campus police or something and gave her a ride. And she was like, you know, even though I know not to get into a car with a stranger, I did that because it's so hard, you know? And so, man, that like really gets you. It's just like, you think about all these situations where something terrible could have happened to you and it didn't, and you just feel grateful. Yeah. I, I think it was important that she shared that because like, it kind of showed like how, how easy it could be for someone like um, Ying Ying to just be trusting, just jump into someone that pretends to be a cop, you know, and, and jump in there. I mean, uh, Diana, you, you and I spoke a little bit uh, about this uh, uh, earlier. Like, I, and I, I, you know, I told you that I, I'm a, a father of a young daughter, and and hearing about all these stories just just freaks me the hell out. You know, like I, I don't know what I can do to prepare her for this, to protect her for this. Like, do I have to have her train in like every single martial arts under the sun? Like, it just it scares the heck out <laughs> of me. You know. <laughs> I think that every, and this is true for everyone, just like there's just some amount of not being able to do anything and just like accepting that. I mean, it sounds terrible, but like it could happen to anyone. And like she was just in like a very, very vulnerable position. And I think it's hard to train for situations like that. When Jenny said that in the film, it reminded me of this time in the seventh grade. And I, I had totally forgotten about this for years, but one of the first few days of 
middle school and my family had just moved across town, you know, so it was like a new school, a new neighborhood. I didn't know how to get home and like the middle school was pretty far from home and I was waiting outside for my mom to pick me up. It was like maybe like the third or fourth day of school and she didn't come and I was like really scared and stressed out. Literally every other kid had gotten picked up or had walked home and nobody was there and I was really stressed out. I was really scared, you know, and there was a guy in a truck that was just waiting in the parking lot. And they'd been waiting there for a while. And then when everybody else left, he waved me over and I went over to talk to him. I wouldn't have normally done that, but I was so scared. And he asked me what was going on or like who I was. And I told him the situation and he was like, oh, well, I can take you home. Oh, my. I was like, oh, my God, thank the Lord. Somebody can take me home. But I didn't get into his car. I was I was just like, um, I'll, I'm going to wait like 10 or 15 minutes more. And then if my mom doesn't show up, then I'll go with you. And he said, OK. And then he just waited. You know, and this was like an hour after school had ended. So I didn't know why he was there. But he was like waiting there for that entire time. And fortunately, my mom came and pick me up. But like, if she didn't, I would have gone with him. And like, who the fuck knows what would have happened? Who was that guy just like waiting in the parking lot of a middle school? Who the fuck does that? You know, looking back, it was really scary. And at the time, if I was not so stressed out and scared, I wouldn't have gone with him. Obviously not. Like, that's just something you never do. But because I was in that uh, vulnerable situation you know, that was like, thank the Lord, there is just somebody that can take care of me, you know, and I was like 12 years old. Wow. Thanks for sharing. That is, that is really, yeah, that's, he probably was a creep, I would think. Thank goodness that your mom came in finally. Holy crap. It shows how much we can try to prepare and think we would tell ourselves to do this and not do this, but the situation forces us and, and changes us, right? So imagine if it was raining or you had to pee or there was some other things that kind of made you change your mind, things could have taken a worse turn. So it, it really is tragic to see kind of that, that people can stay in parking lots outside schools. Um, on that's, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, do how, how do we want to address this, right? Do we want identification? Uh, do we want cameras on the parking, parking lots? I'm, I'm trying to think what, what can we do to prevent this from happening? Yeah. Oh my God, Diana, we almost lost you. <laughs> you know, the good things about technology nowadays, like almost every kid has a phone. I would think by 12, a kid would have a phone by now. So maybe like we have a little bit more better means of communication, like mom and dad can quickly text the kid like, oh, sorry, I'm coming, you know? And, yeah. And GPS tracking yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is way better now, but as a parent, some things you just can't prepare for and like you're just one person. I can't imagine how scared you must be as a parent sometimes. Yeah, Dave and I talk about parenting a lot because I'm also raising a young child, 10 months old. And so I'm getting experience from Dave. And, and one of the things that we talk about is how to raise our uh, children as Asian American how they should uh, think about that identity, how Dave mentioned earlier, his, his hyphen, that he, he sees himself as a bridge. 
since I'm one one point five generation and, and Dave is second generation, you know, what should we do for our kids that are second and third generation? Yeah, yeah, you know, we we think about that a lot, and I, I just try to like expose them as much as I can to Chinese culture. Uh, and be proud, be proud of being Chinese, uh, and both, you know, you, you're both. Um, uh, it's kind of cool, like after Crazy Rich Asians and, and stuff that works kind of like an Asian wave in representation, uh, in, in media now. So that's kind of cool. Um, I think for myself growing up, like I was lucky in that my parents still had a lot of connection with, uh, Asian media, like Hong Kong media. I, I kind of grew up on a steady diet on that kind of stuff. Like, uh, uh, I'm Cantonese, so like Stephen Chow movies, a Cantonese dub, Dragon Ball Z. So I always felt like a good connection there. And I felt like that gave me pride in culture that I knew I was other. I wasn't like dominant culture, but I also saw the value in my, I guess, my parents' native culture. I think when I see Asian American movies, uh, because there's actually a lot and there always has been, um, we're not always, but you know, like in the 2000s, early 2000s, there was kind of a wave and there's always lots of indie filmmakers, but I feel like there's this kind of like anxiety or just this like awareness of themselves as racialized people or something like that. I don't know. There's just this like self-consciousness that's always present it kind of annoys me <laughs> because I know it, you know, and I can see it. But with Jenny's movie, I think that that layer isn't there. And the people that she documents, you know, because there's no actors in this. There's just people. I don't feel that kind of self-awareness or self-consciousness. They're just being, you know. They're just yeah. being people. They seem more human to me. And Jenny, as a storyteller, feels like she's just telling a story as a human being. And I find that refreshing because, you know, like Dave, like you were saying, that is apparent in Hong Kong movies. But I don't think I've seen that in a movie that's in English. There's kind of a need for like first generation international students and immigrants to be telling these stories because they can tell the Asian American story, I think probably better than we can in some ways. They don't have those burdens. It's, it was like so refreshing. Like me and my husband just watched this and like we bawled our eyes out. But in a way I felt, I, I felt it was like really liberating to watch because like she has videos of yinging like in a band and uh, her boyfriend like plays the guitar and like he writes songs for her and like he performed a song at, you know, one of the student rallies for yinging. And I think that that's something that Asian Americans, like the hyphenated Asian Americans, the ones who grew up here like us, I don't think we have a sense of our full humanity. There's always this sort of like question of like, am I allowed to do this? And for, for Jenny and for all of the people in her film, like they didn't ask for permission. That's right. That's right. I, I get what you mean by the burden and, and the performance of the boyfriend was really touching. And I, I'm thinking of 
what you said about the, the 2000s or maybe uh, late 90s, a set of movies by Ang Lee, and, and they were focused on Chinese-American relationships, like a Chinese male married to a white uh, wife, and the father comes in and there's trouble because of the conflict of cultures. And, and so it was a repetitive narrative of adjusting that Asian Americans have to adjust to American culture. And there's, there's none of that in Finding Union. Yeah, that's right. So Jenny is on. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for jumping on. I'm, I have so much admiration for you. You're such an amazing storyteller. When I, when I heard about your doc, I shared it with as many people as I could. And it's universally loved. So, so uh, lots of props to you. I want to especially commend you for making it not like a sensationalized, like true crime doc. You really uh, told Ying Ying's story with such empathy and, and that was, it was just so beautiful. I, I just want to say like, you're a very eloquent storyteller. Um, Jenny, uh, Diana, uh, Ken and I were kind of chatting about how like, you know, Asian Americans, especially myself, uh, I'm a self-described uh, shy Asian guy. We, we kind of have a burden with our own stories and we kind of, a lot of times we don't, we don't have the confidence uh, to, to just show it like it, to tell it like it is, like you might have or someone like a Chinese international student might have. As as a shy Asian guy, you know, uh, and in my experience with like uh, most Asian guys have been reticent to share their stories. And I'm also a father of two young children. Can you talk about your experiences uh, that encourage you to be uh, a storyteller? And, and what advice would you give to, to help? you know, my kids become uh, future good storytellers like, like yourself. Yeah, so for me, I finished my undergraduate study in China. Uh, I majored in journalism. And right after that, I decided to study abroad. So I came to Northwestern University in Chicago, and I was also in a journalism program. And for me, um, I didn't really have a lot of journalistic practice in China. Um, but here in the U.S., I got a year-long program that I was able to basically, you know, doing reporting like every day. And I was all over the place in the city of Chicago. So that was the time I really got really close to some social issues, uh, especially social justice issues regarding people of color um, and minority groups. And for me, that was the year of 20. 16 and uh, we had an election here and uh, you know that you know there were a lot of like social movements going on in the US and uh, around myself so I was so impressed by you know the activists and also inspired by them so for me I really have started to have like a desire you know to tell the story about those communities and also my own community as a Chinese studying in the US and in terms of finding this film, I started it actually when I was still a student. That was the summer of 2017. I was in a documentary journalism class, and that was my last quarter at school. For me, like I didn't really like think about uh, you know making a film at the very beginning. But for me, you know, this is something just related to myself. My parents heard about Ying's disappearance even in China, and they've been texting me. Don't go outside. Uh, be careful about surroundings, and don't go down to urban champagne area. But you know, like my personality is really want to figure out, you know, what's going on. And uh, I would say I also decided to go down to champagne, you know, to see what I could do, what I could help. And I think that's one of the desire or 
like driven source for me to tell a story for such a long time to follow the story for over I think right now it's already over three years, but I'm still in touch with Sin's parents. And I think as a filmmaker and a storyteller, I, I think I'm really passionate about topics and issues related to my own identity and my own experience. And I always believe in the power of storytelling that, you know, a powerful story can really change something, make, ha- I mean, have some social impact in future and probably, you know, inspired people. And even though Finding Ying Ying is a story about a tragedy, but I try to keep some hope and happiness and also optimism throughout the whole film. And that's Ying Ying herself. So we really wanted to highlight Ying Ying, celebrate her life. And I I think through some Q&A at festivals, I got feedbacks from audience. Um, some of them, they were really inspired by Ying Ying herself. Yeah, she's a really inspirational person. I mean, it seems like her family was quite poor and she was able to get into Beida and then to do a PhD at one of the best science programs, science and engineering programs in the world. So that was great that you were able to capture that. We're talking about the true crime documentaries. I feel like that's a very American trope. And I think a lot of even journalists and filmmakers, documentary makers in the U.S., when they make something like this, they fall into these uh, tropey, splashy, dehumanizing pieces, especially when it's a white person reporting on a person of color. But your documentary didn't do that at all. And I think that's one of the things that we really, really appreciated was that it wasn't dehumanizing. And also it was just a different perspective from the stuff that people usually see. So, you know, like, thank you for making it. Yeah, thank you so much for your comments on that. And uh, I'm just very glad, you know, you, after you watch the film, you walk away with an image, uh, which is exactly what we want the audience to take, which is about who Ying was. You know, she was a brilliant, talented, caring person, and also to see how much her life has touched others. In terms of, you know, the true crime narrative, to be honest, when I first started this film, I didn't really know what's going to happen next. Like, for example, like I was really hoping that we could find her maybe a day or two after afterwards. I mean, you, you know, things like this happen. You know, some people, they just have some you know, family issues. They just want to, I mean, avoid contact from others, things like that. But they wish to show up. So we, we, we thought, you know, that was the case. But later on, we saw the surveillance tape of her getting into a black car. And then the police, suddenly they published a, a report. I mean, made an announcement saying that, you know, they arrested the suspect and they don't believe in is still alive. And that was the moment I realized that, you know, the story is going to a totally different direction. And meanwhile, there were a lot of reporters, you know, uh, writing about the story, interviewing the families, all things like that. But I think in the news headlines, they, 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 they really focused on the perpetrator and the investigation and the trying to figure out what exactly happened to her. And the Ying Ying, her story and her family story is somehow, you know, got lost in all this chaos. And uh, even for those interviews with Ying's mom, she was always crying. Like it's just like 10 minutes, 10 seconds soundbite or 10 second image. Um, that's really, I just feel like that's a typical 
um, victim stereotype. And that's definitely something we want to break, uh, break the stereotype. And throughout the whole process, it was really during 2018 when I was in China with Xin's family. I got to talk to a lot of her friends, colleagues, family members, and I got to see her personal belongings, her bedroom, her handwritings of her diaries, and a lot of childhood photos. And I just feel like suddenly I, I learned so much about, about this person. And uh, I just feel like, um, you know, now it's, it's been over three years. I just feel like she, she was an like, old friend of mine, even though we never met each other in real life when she was still with us. But I just, just feel like, you know, she's becoming an inspiration, even for me in my, in my daily life. And just thinking about how amazing she was. She went missing when she was 26. And the, like this year, I was also 20. I'm also 26. So I'm just thinking about oh, how time flies and what she would be doing, you know, if nothing like this happened. Also, like I mentioned, one of the goal for the film is to let audience to memorize who Ying was uh, and celebrate her life. The other purpose is really to challenge the traditional narrative of a true crime story. So it's really to, you know, to think about who we should talk about in a tragedy, whether we should, you know, keep talking about the crime and how we are going to talk about the crime, whether it's going to glorify the heinous crime and the perpetrator. And I think that's something, you know, we really need to think about. They focus so much on the killer. They glorify and humanize the killer way more than the victim. The victim is just a body to them. Yeah, so I think other than like our documentary, there are other there were other documentary crew. Um they're trying to also make documentaries, but that's more like a ju- investigative like journalism piece. Um in those programs, they actually interviewed the uh, I think the father of the perpetrator. I don't know. I actually didn't really watch through those TV documentaries, but I was re- always thinking about the out- outsider perspective and insider perspective. For me, there are so many similarities between Ying's experience and my own experience, and I do really see the parallel between each other. This is not a simple crime story. There are so many cultural nuances in the story. And thinking about Ying's parents, you know, sometimes they, they were really frustrated about the slow criminal justice system. I mean, the, the whole process, they were really frustrated about the investigation, but they didn't know what to do. They Sometimes they don't even know how to express their anger and frustration because of the language barrier. So in some uh, American media coverage, sometimes Ying's parents just look like, you know, I don't know, maybe some people would, would, would feel like, you know, they are just crazy and uh, they lost their, 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 their child and that's it. But I just feel like there were so, so many behind scenes stories that no one is really covering that. I'm hoping, you know, this film can bring, you know, different perspective to the mainstream narrative. And also in this film, I'm not trying to blame any side. It's really about painting a fair picture and showing the perspective from both sides. So we interviewed the FBI, the prosecutors, the university police. So the Chinese audience, they could understand what kind of investigation, what kind of efforts that the U.S. law enforcement 
law enforcement had made, you know, in the in terms of investigation, and also show the American audience that what kind of barriers and difficulties that the family they are going through in the past three years, and really to build build a bridge, I would say, to connect, you know, the gap between each other. And other than that, I'm also hoping to actually spark conversations around international student community. I touched a little bit on that topic in Finding Yingying, and I brought in my own experience uh, about being an international student in the U.S. And I think, you know, Finding Yingying, this is not a film just about like a foreigner, like a Chinese student killed in the U.S. It actually has like universal uh, feelings. Um, I think all like parents they can relate it to the Ying's parents because your children are such a big part of your life. And also me, you know, making this film, I actually think about my parents a lot right now. After making the film, I think about my relationship with my parents. And sometimes I couldn't even stop thinking about what if, you know, this happened to me, um, what my parents would look like and how it would destroy my family. And also, for American universities, I, I'm hoping that there could be more programs and services for international students. Because, like, for example, Yingying got into the car. Uh, I think at the very beginning, when we first learned that fact, some people were even blaming Yingying. Basically, you know, why, why did you get into a stranger's car? I mean, they, they, they definitely couldn't understand because they were, they were not Yingying. Like, but I can understand as someone, uh, new in the country, maybe she wasn't really fully prepared for herself. Um, she didn't really have a full knowledge of American culture and the situation here when she was in China. And after she arrived here, because she she came during the summer vacation, uh, so she didn't she didn't go through any orientation or things like that. It was her colleagues helping her, like driving her around in the first few weeks, um, and actually. That day uh, was her first time going out alone. So, you know, things just happen. I think that's just very unfortunate. But I do think, you know, there are more we could do to prevent such tragedy happening in the future. Wow. Thank you so much for uh, making this film. So I teach a course on filmmaking. I'm going to try to show my students clips to uh, show them perspectives and storytelling and foreshadowing. And I remember the the footage you left in of the aunt saying she wanted to search the garbage cans and how that came into play later. Um, in terms of filmmaking, Jenny, I want to ask you uh, your role behind the camera and it, if you had any instances or moments when you felt like you had to step in front of the camera or, or kind of intervene. I'm thinking about this powerful fight scene between the parents in China when they were, I believe the father was really demeaning to the mother and in, in a very sexist way, if I remember co correctly, co saying that she didn't know what she didn't know what she's talking about, she didn't have any information. Were there any moments when you were making the film that you felt like you, you had to bite your tongue, that you had to control yourself? Yeah, there were so many moments like that. I think from the first day I started this project, I was constantly asking myself, you know, whether I should pursue first whether I should pursue this project, pursue this project because it was such a dark journey for the family, for the character, and uh, whether like my uh, appearance would put extra like burden on them when they were trying to figure out what happened to their daughter. 
And second thing is, uh, after I build a relationship, build the trust with the family, uh, there were certain moments when I should keep filming. Like when, when Ying's mom crying, whether I should still, you know, hold my camera, um, keep filming probably the worst moment of her life. I asked myself a lot uh, and I didn't know what to do. So I talked to many experienced filmmakers for their insight, you know, on this issue. And uh, one of the filmmaker filmmakers I talked to was Gordon Quinn, who's the artistic director and co-founder of Cartoon Quinn Films. That's a documentary production company based in Chicago. So he gave me a lot of guidance in, in terms of dealing like ethical dilemmas. And for me, I didn't really have a clear line about, you know, when I'm going to keep filming, when I should stop filming and interfere what's going on at the moment. It really based on, you know, case by case, I would say. And specifically talking about the uh, uh, parents finding scene you just mentioned. They actually fought even before I captured this uh, scene. They f- that was the day before they left for China in 2017. That was like after five months spending in the U.S., they ran out of money and uh, the trial was delayed. So the night before that, somehow these parents um, yelling at each other. Um, at that time, I wasn't filming. So, so I think it was me, Ying's colleague and Ying's brother uh, and also Ying's boyfriend. We basically held back uh, the parents and stopped, like, stopped the fight. And when we were in China in 2018, that scene, like, I didn't expect, you know, such thing happen again. Uh, we were just filming the breakfast. And then they just start, all of a sudden, they started to, like, yell at each other. If you still recall the that scene, we actually cut away very quickly after you saw, like, mom turn over the table or whatever. And then the next shot was, like, the close-up. In the reality, I was in the shot. I was trying to stop the fight. But from my perspective, I don't want to be a big part of the film. So we just cut that part. And for myself, being sort of being a character in the film, that wasn't my plan at all at the beginning. It was during several working progress screening. um, There were questions from the audience, like who's making this film, whether you are exploiting your relationship with the family, what's the intention behind that? So I th- I just feel like I need to, you know, basically fix those issues. Uh, I don't want the audience to watch the film with all these questions in their mind. So they might lose the focus of who Ying was, like the great story we want to tell about Ying. So I gradually like add myself uh, into the film. And uh, ultimately, I feel like that's necessarily necessary because uh, my perspective as an international student is important. And also, there were so many facts and the emotions, feelings that can't be tell can't be told without my narration. So that's how I ended up in the film. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great decision. I I want to ask you about your experience as a young female Chinese filmmaker uh, making English language films. How how is the industry? How does the industry uh, treating Asians and Asian Americans? Um, so for me, uh, Finding Ying is my first feature, and I started it right after I graduate. So I'm really lucky because I'm in Chicago, and I have a very supportive community around me, uh, which is Kartenquin. I was Diverse Voices in Documentary Fellow at Kartenquin in 2018. That's a fellowship specifically for female filmmaker of color. 
And the Karchankwen, they were very supportive for emerging filmmakers, first-time filmmakers. I also have a great team. I have uh, two producers. One is actually my former professor at Northwestern. That professor named Brent Huffman. And another producer is Diane Kwan. She's a Chinese-American, and she's American-born Chinese-American. So her perspective is a little bit different from my perspective, but I think that's, a, that's very good to have a more American perspective on the film. So for me, I have a great team supporting myself, but I did have some uh, problem applying for grants, uh, getting money, getting uh, the film funded. Some would ask why this story is important. They just feel like, you know, this might be another news magazine story, like an investigation, like literally like the true crime style. And some would ask, you know, what, what do you want the audience to take away? And some specifically feel like there are too much Mandarin conversations. There are too, you know, <laughs> for, for English audience. English, That's messed up. Yeah, English speaking audience to to process, you know, is kind of like a barrier. So that's why, you know, I actually read Ying's diary in English. Uh, there are different reasons. One is we want the audience to focus on Ying's handwriting. So try to avoid the situations like they need to read the subtitles. Meanwhile, we are showing Ying's handwriting. But another reason is definitely the more English speaking part, the better for the film in terms of distribution and uh, like fundraising. So that's, that, that's something like, I mean, some decision I have to make in terms of thinking about uh, what my audience is and how the industry, you know, think about this film. So it's a little bit complicated, yeah. I'm sure they wouldn't mind German or French or uh, European languages, but I think you right, made the right decision because ultimately you need that funding and you want to get this movie out. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I think because you're also very similar to Ying, like you reading her diary, at first I thought it was like her reading her own diary. It was really moving. If you hadn't done that, it, the movie just wouldn't have been the same. Yeah, thank you so much. Actually, my voice, okay, here's the story. Actually, we didn't think about just having me reading her diary. Uh, I was just doing it temporary when we were editing I was actually looking for like actress or someone else to read the diary because I want to make sure that the audience understand it's Ying Ying uh, when they hear the like voiceover about the diary. And it's me when I'm talking about my own experience as sort of like a narrator of the film. I think we try like several people, uh, but just feel like, you know, it, it, it didn't really quite fit the story and the feeling. At that time, I we are still in the process of adding my experience, my voiceover into the film. So I think ultimately we came to a point, um, just feel like uh, if it's me reading the diary, plus it's me uh, like having a lot of narration, you know, over the film, actually the audience can even connect more to me, to my story and also to Ying's story. And then I think the next step, next step we did was really to make sure that the audience won't be confused. So every time we see, when it came to like the diary part, we we showed uh, Ying's handwriting first. So the audience would understand, okay, this is the part about the diary. It's Ying's uh, you know, thoughts. And then, yeah, we actually also like did some like uh, effect in terms of the sound to try to differentiate you know, two parts. 
Yeah, I thought that was really effectively done. It wasn't confusing at all. And I think just um, having your story integrated into the movie and in, with Ying Ying's story, it tells a fuller, it, it portrays a fuller picture of Chinese or Asian international students. Because even in reports of other tragedies, they'll show the stereotypical mother crying. But essentially, it's just the victim as an individual isolated, but there's the whole family story in the US, there's a family story in China. And also there's the like story of the student within a community of other international students. American media just never really considers that. And I think that even includes Asian Americans. We're not really in the same communities as international students. So having you tell that story was really, really powerful and refreshing. Yeah, and I think one thing I wanted to add is right now there are a lot of like immigrants. I think a pretty like a big part of them, they came here as international students. Even though in Ying's story, she didn't plan to stay in the US, but that definitely her experience related to a lot of uh, first generation immigrants. Some of my, like I myself, I didn't have plan, you know, to, uh, to like stay here forever, but I have friends who've been here already like over 10 years and they've already become U.S. citizens. So they have exact feeling um, when they heard about the, the story, in story, and also watch the, after watching the film, they read her diaries. They had, they, they feel more related, you know, to the story itself. And also, I just feel like right now we really need, you know, Asian uh, storytellers to tell Asian stories, to really create the visibility of uh, the whole community. And I think you, you just mentioned that, you know, even though sometimes we will feel like Asian American community not really be part of like international student community. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a story about like minority. It's the story about those who are vulnerable. It's also a story really to empower, you know, those voices, um, those people whose story need to be heard, to be told. So I'm just very glad that Ying's parents really trust me uh, and trust my team, give us almost a full access, you know, to tell the story. And I'm so glad that uh, we actually had enough money to finish the film and uh, got the film distributed. And right now it's in the film festivals and we had a great you know a lot of audience watching the film i think it, it it is like a little bit sad because of covid we had to cancel all in-person events but we are looking forward to have like more virtual like screenings and hopefully after the pandemic we can have uh, more conversations in the community somehow we can launch impact campaigns to see what greater and bigger things that the film can do in future yeah, yeah. It's amazing that you are an inspiration to, to me, at least. I'm so appreciative of your, your skills to, to be a great storyteller and to have the wherewithal to challenge stereotypes and, and breaking it too. I, I believe like one way to do it is by controlling the narrative and being the storyteller, right? Like you definitely uh, broke a stereotype for me when you showed that like not all international students are like rich kids. Uh, coming here, paying full price and everything, like Ying Ying's family was, came from very uh, sort of humble backgrounds. Um, you also touched on a point that, that resonates with me, like being a bridge. I just wanted to explore that a little bit. Like I've, I've heard you speak in, in other venues that 
You made sure the family approved of the documentary cut that the father in particular really wanted to push for a wider release of this, this movie in, in China. Uh, what, what do you think, uh, uh, that is? Like, what do you think is his hope is for getting the story out? Because like, I mean, was it that it has something to do with like some of the more negative rumors that are coming out there that you touched upon in the doc? Yeah. So I think the family, like right now, they really have, they really have the fear that ultimately the public attention and the media attention would go away as, you know, life, life goes on and there are other things happening, you know, in the world. Uh, and somehow they were, they were just forgot. They were just forgot behind, left behind. So they definitely had that concern. For them, they, they lost their daughter and basically lost the hope of their life. And also, like, the family was basically built around Yingying, how they like she was such an important part of the family. So they didn't really know what to do with the rest of their life. Other than that, they had to bear all the rumors, baseless rumors around them. And I think, like, this film, you know, we, 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 we happened to capture, like, the fight between his parents. But at the, actually, that really caused by the rumors. So you really see how the rumors is hurting the family. So I'm hoping, you know, showing the film in China can really uh, basically debunk those rumors um, and also like baseless conspiracies about the family. They are trying to like being be be rich, you know, because of the death of the daughter. All these heinous, I, all these like bad bad words about them. So I definitely wanted to show the audience, you know, what exactly happened inside the family. Uh, in terms of the family, their suggestion or feedback on the film, that's actually a tradition of Kartankwen films. All the films, um, filmmakers would like to show the final cut or at least, you know, get feedback from the participants of the film to really, you know, take their thoughts and feedback into consideration. And for us, we did plan for that. So I actually plan to, you know, sit with them like in person, meet them in person, show them the film. But unfortunately, because of COVID, I can't really travel. So we ended up doing a different thing that I actually asked two of my friends in China, visit the family in person uh, and bring the film on their laptop to them. And I and my co-producer and the cinema cinematographer, Shiling Sun, we Skyped in. So we somehow still uh, watch the film real time with the family. And we definitely didn't want to kind of like throw a link to them and let them sit through the whole process. It was very difficult for them to watch. Uh, and it's understandable. Ying's mom, she started like, she started like crying at the beginning, even just hearing about like the news, things like that. And my friend, she was hugging, she was hugging his mother, uh, the whole time. And because Ying's mother, she can't read Chinese and she don't, she don't know English. So, uh, even with Chinese subtitles, she sometimes she can't really understand what's going on. So my friend, she was translating what's going on on screen real time to Ying's mom, and I was worried about the the fight, you know, because that's a Chinese culture that we we just don't want to show family affairs, especially fa family conflicts in public. Um, but I was a little bit surprised that the family they didn't really have a big issue about the fighting scene because they just feel like. That's something, you know, the reporters, like, um, news coverage didn't really show um, right now. And that's something really hurting them. They just feel like people should understand what's going on in the family. They, they, they made, like, several notes. One is talk about the civil lawsuit against the University of Illinois. 
that's something right now they were kind of really angry about the university not doing anything afterwards. And also one note about a specific scene that Ying's uh, mother, she talked about they're eating eggs in China. I'm not sure if you still recall that scene. Like I had a little conversation with her and she was kind of smiling and talking to me. Ying's father, he was afraid that people would meet would misunderstand that, you know, they were actually happy. And I was like, no, actually, I explained later in the film, Ying's mom smiled because she's happy seeing me. So you could really see like how the rumors and public opinions hurting the family. They, they didn't even want, they don't even want to show any happiness or like smile or just normal life to the public. So I think it's very meaningful, you know, showing this film in China. And in terms of like the father's intention, he wanted to like promote a film widely. I would say like the family, they constantly change their mind. And I do understand sometimes they just, you know, too, too careful about what's going to happen next. So even though like the last conversation I had with his father, he wanted to have like a kind of theatrical release or whatever. I still need to check in with him, you know, uh, before our next step. So that's basically how we are maintaining the relationship with um, the parents. Yeah, th- thanks for sharing. I, I think you, you did a great job, and it shows your personal connection with them. Uh, they they let you get in so intimately, and you know shows. I can tell that you you, you really care about uh, their feedback, and you take their feedback uh, really seriously. And, and you did a great job humanizing them, and I commend them for for allowing you to to get in there and, and show them like three sixty. Um, it really allowed me to connect with them. You know, as painful as it was. Uh, it was a really uh, important story. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for the interview. She's just so eloquent. I, I'm just so impressed. She like peels back uh, uh, the curtain, so to speak, and, and talks about uh, the inner workings of, of the movie and, and her story through that. Um, yeah. As I said, the doc really broke stereotypes for me, especially like international students uh, being rich and Asians being great storytellers. Uh, that just impressed me so much. It was, it was great to hear more of the process and behind kind of the family, how they changed their minds and what they wanted, the rumors, um, that adds another depth of the, of the story. And actually learning that she created a short film, maybe a 10 minute version. And she said when she was describing it, she was already calling it finding Ying Ying. And that, that kind of answered the question that I had earlier, which was what, what the, the title meant. Uh, it seems like the title at the beginning was she wanted to actually find her because it was hope that they can find her. And then over time, it became bleak. And then the title takes on a different meaning of the process of searching. And then near, near the end of, of kind of celebrating her that we, 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 we have a records of her, her writing, her diary and her pictures. It's worth uh, remembering her through the story. It's, it's such an amazing part of, of, of the story, how, how agile she was during the whole process of being like, she didn't go into this in a, with the intention of making like a documentary about, about Ying Ying. Uh, she was thinking it would be like a quick uh, go in there and find it, go help, uh, do what I can. That's just so impressive. I also think like she's so brave to, to go, go there. I mean, of her jumping into the scene, like after someone very similar, like her met such a terrible end and, she just says she got crazy balls. <laughs> I think, I think she just has like a really good connection with like a, like a, like a good true north. Like she was like, I'm going to try to help in whatever way I can. 
one of the goals that she mentioned of making this film is to raise awareness for universities and colleges to provide more support for international students. And I hope that's the case, but I, I am skeptical and quite cynical because the reason that universities are admitting more and more international students is because of money. It would mean a cut to their budget to create more support services. And they're relying on every, every last penny from Chinese and Indian students. I was writing an op-ed this summer defending international students. And I learned that last year they brought in $45 billion to the U.S. economy and sustained over 400, uh, 450,000 jobs. I want to kind of emphasize is a repercussion of U.S. Gov government federal cuts to funding. And this cut, to this cut also affects private colleges. So even though I teach at Moravian College and it's, it's private, it's a private small liberal arts college, the government cuts still hurt our institution because there's less federal financial aid to students that need it. And so this is all part of the neoliberal uh, capitalist economy. And, and it's a really sad thing because 53% of international students are from China and India in the U.S. Kin, do you have a lot of international students? I do. I wouldn't say a lot, but there's a fair amount for Bethlehem, more than that, what I would expect. Our school recruited heavily for uh, Saudi Arabian students. And so we had a large contingent for a few years, but that always changes because you never know how uh, the government will fund them. We have international students from Japan, from France. There's, there's quite a s small pocket, but uh, not enough. So, but, but what I see is when they're in my, in my classes and my American students interact with them, they really learn. They really appreciate different perspectives around the world that not just their local Bethlehem, Pennsylvania perspective and how to see, see the world. And what, one of the big changes or disagreements would be this American value of freedom and individuality of, of saying, I can do what I want. And then the international students care a lot more in their, the liberation, because I teach courses on ethics, about community, about family, and what their responsibilities are to people that raise them. Do you feel like they're given good treatment in your school and by your colleagues, you know, other professors? Because like Bethlehem, it's sort of similar to UIUC in that it's in a not super urban area. It's mostly white but there's a lot of international students. How do you feel about this movie as a professor? And like, did it change anything for you as a professor in a school like this? Watching that film brought me back to when I visited University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I was there to give a paper on a Asian and philosophy conference. And I remember visiting, I had to go to the nearest major airport and drive two hours through the cornfields just to get to the school. And I was wondering, what is going on? Where is this place? Why would there be so many international <laughs> students that want to study here? And, and Dave adds this question to me. And, and, and I remember looking it up at that time because I was surprised to learn. And there was just so many uh, Chinese students, especially at campus. And so I looked it up, but I forgot the answer. And so when Dave asked me and we found out, yeah, it's ranked highly for engineering, right? I think ranked fourth for engineering around the world. And that's really impressive. Yeah, especially in electrical engineering and computer science. It's one of the best institutions. Like, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of Chinese students are there. And frankly, like, there's Chinese students at every, every single campus. In Nebraska, which is where I'm from, 
at the University of Nebraska, and there are so many Chinese international students. You know, and it's surprising because it's not even highly ranked <laughs> in anything, and it's in the middle of fucking bumfuck nowhere. It's also like just surrounded by cornfields, but people come because it's America. I mean, that's your real answer, Dave. You were talking about how, like, you had a stereotype that Chinese international students were all wealthy. Well, like, especially in engineering and STEM, like a lot of people who come here, they get stipends. For doing research, they don't have to pay tuition. If you're a PhD student, they're getting more from you coming here for free and them paying you than they are of、um, like your tuition because they want your talent and your skills. I think Yingying she didn't pay for anything. They were paying for her to come here to study because she was one of the best and the brightest in China. And so, like a lot of the students who are international from like China and India, if they're in grad school, you know, like they're not even making like tuition off of them. That's right. That's right. Grad school is different than undergrad. So the money is made through undergrad and master's students, not so much as the as the PhD level. Even when people come here as an international student for undergrad, it's not necessarily that their parents are loaded. It's because they save every last fucking penny for their kid to come here. Like they sacrifice for decades. You know, they start saving up before the kid is born. Sometimes, like these parents, they'll do anything for their kid, for their kid's future. And I think that is completely lost in discussions about international students, especially from China, even on this podcast. Like people just talk about like rich Chinese students, but like Chinese students are not rich. My dad came over here as a student, and he didn't have anything except for a family to take care of. Like my mom had forty dollars, which she sewed into her underwear. Wow, not a sacrifice. Not talked about, especially with、uh, pinning the hope on their child's education. I thought it was interesting that Yingying was able to be so. Amazing in school, getting into Beida from a small town from a mother that does not read Chinese. Yeah, that was crazy to me. Do you feel like there's anything that you can do as a professor? So, I do try to raise awareness to my colleagues of what international students are facing. So during COVID nineteen, some of my students had to return back,、uh, leave the U.S. because it's safer. For them, there than than the U.S. and they want to be with their family, so it makes perfect sense. And some of them studying, especially from China,、uh, they, when they access even our school, we use this. We use Gmail for our college email in China. That's blocked, which means that they have a hard time getting just the school email information. Or if I assign things in class that is something that I take for granted, like YouTube videos. That's a challenge because that's blocked in China. So I have to find a way to download the YouTube videos and then convert it to a movie file and upload it to my so-、uh, learning management software. So it's all these things that I want to let my colleagues know that、uh, our students are facing. So that's that's a small level, but the the bigger level is I think talking to everyone, not just my my colleagues, but everyone about the constant cuts from the federal government.、Uh, For higher education and how that impacts us as a society, not just international students. 
when my freshman students, when I asked when I asked them about where they see themselves uh, down the road, and they're thinking about after they graduate, what they want to do, and they talk about getting a job, what they do, what they want to do with their college degree, and so now now they're seeing college as a ticket, a meal ticket, as a stamp to certificate to, to uh, I guess show that they're they have skills and qualifications to work, and that to me is not what I see. The only thing that college can provide. Yes, we want to provide that as part of your education for skills to get into the, to your work field. But I, I believe a lot of job, a lot of jobs when students graduate, they're going to learn on the job. And so the skills they need are going to be more abstract. It's going to be more critical thinking skills and how to uh, interact with other people, teamwork, leadership, cooperation, writing, expressing yourself, reading critically. And these skills are not emphasized when the parents push the students to say, hey, how are you going to make money off that major? And I think that is a big kind of, there's a big trouble. Then students gravitate towards majors that are words that also mean a job, right? So accounting major or nursing major. And that means less students studying English or history. But we need both. We need all that to, to help us understand the breadth of human condition. It seems like a systemic issue, right, where the funding in general is being cut. A lot of the funding is relying on international students. I think that most international students are going to be here studying useful, quote unquote, useful degrees. I don't know how it works in the U.S., but I think in Canada, they don't even take international people unless they're in STEM. So those majors get more funding. And then the English and history majors, they're just like kind of like drying up. How do you change that? How do you reverse that? I, I think we, we have to think about the, the values and what it means to be successful and not equate success. I hear there's a lot people equate success with making money. And when people ask me, why did I get into teaching philosophy and religion? It's not for money. <laughs> it's a college professor. I'm not spending all that year getting the degree. It's, it's, it's definitely not a return on my investment deal. It's because I had to face these big changes in my life growing up. I went to about four or five funerals, uh, in high school and college. When, when you see life slip away that easily at a young age, then you realize it, making money is not the point. And I don't know if it, it takes that type of tragic personal experience for people to think out of a way from making money. I'm not kind of saying you shouldn't make money. I care about making money. I care about uh, raises and cuts to my profession. But I, I think I want to um, talk more about how we're fighting for a little scrap at the table when the rich are getting richer. And this is related to a conversation that I've just had with Dave about the uh, entrance exams to specialized high schools in New York. And so this is maybe um, only for New York City, but I think this is a larger issue that Asians and Asian Americans should think about, which is that test is being touted as a fair test and Asians do really well on that test. So something like 70, 4% of the top high school in New York City are composed of Asians and Asian Americans. And that's from one test. And Dave was asking me, so how do you change this? And, and I said, this is an artificial kind of limitation of creating a scarce public good, which is a good high school. 
So why limit that high school to whatever size it is? Like, Dave, how, how, how many people are in style right now? Oh, uh, I think our class was 800. So times by four, maybe like 3,200. Yeah, 3, so why 32, right? So why, why not make the school bigger? Because we have another school, specialized high school in New York, Brooklyn Technical High School. That's double that. So bring it back to higher education. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has this podcast about how to fix higher education in the U.S. And one of the ways to do that is not artificially limit the best schools. But that's what Harvard, Princeton, and Yale and the Ivies are doing. But you can see that uh, the schools, the best schools in Canada are much bigger. And we can see that in the UC system, right? UC Berkeley uh, is such a great school and it's much bigger than the Ivies. So we, we need to kind of think other ways to expand the public goods and not just limit it to a small amount that, that Asians will have to fight for with other minorities. Yeah, right on. Have more seats. How How is that negative? Unless it's basically just the rich trying to create that scarcity mentality and limit access to the resources that the rich are hoarding. That's right. It's social capital. With Dave and I, we are Stuyvesant alumni. And so we might have this unconscious desire to limit it because we've had that degree and how it was scarce and it still is, right? And so, so as alumni, we really, really need to speak to others and say, hey, let's open the doors and let's not be gatekeepers. And there's plenty of space in New York for a bigger school and plenty of qualified students to be at the top school, plenty of top teachers that want to teach at a top school. I totally agree with that. Um, I was listening to an earlier pod that you guys did about the, the SH, uh, SAT and uh, how, yeah, it, it is artificial. And I mean, in some ways, uh, I'm proud that there's a space for Asians to like dominate. But you know what? We should we shouldn't be pitted against each other, uh, other minorities. Let's let's expand the pie. There really isn't any reason why it shouldn't be able to. You know, like it's almost like kind of like globalism. Like when like uh, a certain people hate on on globalism, try to like enforce tariffs and do protectionist uh, policies. It's like why why are you doing that? Everyone's just trying to cover their own turf. Why expand the pie? Share. Does it have to do with the fact that states don't have the money to expand? I think I gets less funding than the average high school student in New York City, probably because they get alumni funding. And you're right about the resources, right? So, so it's what what does the resources does a city have? And it's easier to put some funding or attention to their top schools and ne- neglect all the poorer schools in the black and brown neighborhoods. Or moving the chairs around to, to pretend like you're doing something just so you win an election for another cycle. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny, like growing up like in, in New York, like I said, like I, I, I didn't feel like a minority because I didn't see white people that much, like going through public schools. When I was younger, it was like schools in Chinatown. It's very Asian demographic. But I went to a junior high school uh, near uh, like uh, Gramercy, you know, like uh, 20th Street, and like, Seriously, even there, it was mostly Black, Latino, and Asians. I like white people were just not there because, you know, where they send them, they send them to private schools. You know, they're out of that system. They have that op- opportunity to like kind of opt out. The folks in power don't really have an incentive to fix the system. And I think the defenders are trying to latch on to how this one test allows Asians to succeed, and so this idea of meritocracy. And I think. Um, thinking about Michael Sandel's new book, The Tyranny of Meritocracy, that this actually hurts the people that score well and hurts the people that uh, score low on this test. So I actually taught 
test prep for Kaplan and Princeton Review for four years before I taught in higher ed and went to grad school. And I can tell you from my experience that that is not a fair test because I can improve a student's score uh, without teaching them math, without teaching them reading skills at all, but just simply teaching them the secrets and the tricks behind how the test is structured. So let me give you an example. A student's trying to answer a math question, right? They give you an algebra equation. The student immediately solves for X. They solve for X. They find that number. If X is four, they look at the multiple choice. They pick four. They move on and they get it wrong because the question is not asking what is X. The question is asking what is X plus two. And that is messed up. As a teacher, that is messed up. Why would you do that to students? Well, here's why. Because the testing companies need to artificially make their tests uh, so difficult to rank students. It's a gatekeeping test. And they can't do that with just math and reading skills. So they actually start tricking students. So if anything, the, t- the test is not fair. And if the student has a privilege of learning the SAT prep from me in the classroom or, or finding a book in the library, then they might learn that trick. But otherwise, then they won't beat themselves up and say, I, I don't know math. I messed up in algebra because I did low on the score. And so that that's the negative of the meritocracy because then low scorers on that test think it's their fault. But I think the, the other hidden issue is the high scores think they did really well with discounting all the luck involved in getting preparation and studying and growing up in a stable environment with a loving family, with food on the, on the table that will allow you to study and do, do well on these tests. So the tests might be the same finish line, right? So everyone's trying to race to the finish line, but no one starts in the same positions. Everyone starts at different positions. So holding on to that one test is just holding on to this kind of myth, this dream of meritocracy. And it hurts everyone. I also heard it's just really stressful at schools like Stai, kids who are studying for the test to get in. Like that starts when you're like in grade school and middle school. So it really just eats into your childhood. Um, what was it like for you guys, you know, as students who went to Stai and like, was it as bad as people say? You know, uh, I don't know. I guess, um, yeah, I, I didn't have a great time at Stai uh, studying for the test. I would say, I, you know what, it's, it's, I, I knew what the game was. I knew what the rules were. So I took it upon myself. Like my family didn't have the wherewithal to put me through like tutoring and whatnot. So I took it upon myself to, to go to the library and just find a book and, uh, you know, go sit with that book for a couple of hours and get as many uh, tricks as I could out of that and, and try to kick that uh, test butt uh, while I could. But then, you know, when I got to Stai, um, yeah, I have to mention, like, yeah, it, it was like, whoa, there's so many just as smart kids out there. And uh, frankly, kids that worked a lot harder than me. <laughs> so I was like, uh-oh, man, this kind of sucks. So I, I was thrown for a little bit of loop, I would have to say, and, and a bit of a malaise uh, at Stai. And it, it translated a little bit, it transferred a little bit after that. It, it was a little bit stressful uh, for me. I just felt like at Stai, there was a crazy rat race going on. And I was like, my goodness, I, I don't have a leg up anymore. Like, I, I can't outwork these people. So, yeah, that, that was a, a bit of a struggle for sure. Like you, Dave, I also went to the library when I was studying for the SHSAT. And I was lucky I found a, a really used old book and it helped me. And somehow I got in, right? So when I got into Stai, I actually really appreciated being in a place that really emphasizes how learning is a good thing. Because 
I hear from my cousins and from just popular media, just kind of anti-intellectual ethos for the U.S. education system. The idea that you can call someone a nerd and that's an insult because they study too much. That doesn't make sense in East Asia. There's, there's no insult at studying too much. Uh, maybe studying too much because you're not <laughs> smart, right? Because you need to study because you're not that smart. But if you ace the test, oh, everyone thinks you're a superstar. So that, that's what I liked about being in style, that people cared about the grades and uh, was competitive. And I'm a very competitive person. And so that actually worked out to see that. And not only that you can be smart, but you can be smart and do well in other things. It's not a either you're a nerd or you're a jock. Because in style, we had sports teams. And you can be both. And so you could be a great football player and do really well on chemistry and engineering. Uh, I want to touch on that. Like, so I'm a big basketball, like, junkie. And like, I would say that it's not so hard to get on a team, uh, especially <laughs> in like, public school, man. I tried for the, the Stuyvesant basketball team. And it's like, they just throw you in there with 200 other kids and they're like, try to differentiate yourself. And that's, it's like too small, too scrawny and no chance. Uh, yeah, I, I wish I, I grew up in like, you know, uh, some, some school where, you know, anyone that wanted to could get on the team. That would have helped me a lot. Uh, get some muscle tone earlier <laughs> in my youth. Ken, Ken, talk, talk about your, your competitiveness. I, I love the story that we, we, we chatted about recently about, uh, how, how you were, uh, the unwitting salutatorian of your, uh, junior high. I don't know how interesting that is, but I was sharing this because, I'm a faculty advisor to the Asian Students Union, and so I, I joined their meetings, and we have these icebreakers, and one of them was sh- share an embarrassing moment, and I sh- shared with them that when I was 14, graduating middle school, I was uh, going to give a speech as a salutatorian, and I'm walking up in my graduation gown, and I step on the gown, so I'm walking up the steps, stepping on my gown. I'm really afraid I fall flat on my face. Luckily, I didn't. But everyone's like, whoa, oops. And I was okay. And I ended up giving that speech. How I remember that was that I was more annoyed that I was not the valedictorian because I didn't know there was such a thing because I'm a first generation uh, student. <laughs> I didn't know there was a competition. I was, and I, I was like side eyeing the valedictorian the whole time. I was like, I, if I only knew I, I would definitely have studied. And then beat you out on that average. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that that's my memory. That's like my my emotional kind of uh, valence when I when I think back. And it's all these things that I didn't know going through all this because my parents, my mother had some middle school, my my father had grade grade school, no more than grade school. So they don't know all these things. And and so. As a college professor, I'm trying to make sure my first-generation students know about office hours, know about what it means to email your professors for extensions and de- of deadlines, and, and these things that my, frankly, my white students already know to do because their parents, they're not first-generation, and they, they speak the language, whereas a lot of my first-generation students don't re- even realize this was an option. To piggyback off of that, yeah, for sure. Like, as a son of immigrant, you know, I'm not an immigrant, but neither am I assimilated enough to com- comfortably blend into the dominant white culture. So, like, and, and you don't have that guidance, right, with parents that, that weren't well-educated. So it's it's kind of like you're charting your own path, and it's like it's hard to be confident charting your own path. You're kind of, like, muddling through, you know. So, like, it started in the style when I started to realize that, and I, I started really to, to search and search for, like, role models, and I didn't really find like a one for one good fit 
And honestly, now that I have kids, I realize like, shit, I just, I just got to do it. I just got to become one for them. And, and, uh, it's, it's going to be confusing. It's got to be like, it's going to be a lot of one eighties and, and, and whatnot, but you know, through challenges, I, I'm an optimist. So through challenges, I feel like opportunities do arise and, and just to tie it back to plan A, I, I, that's why I love you guys. Like you guys give me the vocabulary to discuss these, these cl- topics close to my heart. And, and uh, I look for opportunities in my community to be a, a positive uh, model of, and through that, like, I love to try to connect, you know, and that's why, you know, to tie it back to Jenny Shi and finding Yingy, it's like, I love the opportunity that we had to connect uh, with you, Diana, and with, with Jenny. I feel like the representation matters, the owning the story, the controlling the narrative matters, you know, because only through that can we empower ourselves to kind of change the outcomes and change the, some of these negative experiences. Yeah, for sure. I I really like this discussion so far because, I mean, it kind of started out with media representation. And like, I feel like for a lot of Asian Americans, that's where the conversation ends. But like, it's not just about movies, like movies are so limited because they're all filtered through white gatekeepers, you know, and like, I think finding Ying Ying is exceptional, but it shouldn't be. The fact that it is makes me sad about the media landscape. I would rather listen to your your guys' stories about being a professor and like going to Stye because I think they say so much more about actual lived experiences of Asian Americans, you know? And I also think it's really inspiring that you guys are both looking for opportunities to become mentors, you know, for first-gen immigrants and for young people. I think that's what's missing, actually, is that there's there's a lot of places where there just isn't a lot of community support and leadership, like on a local level. You know, like we can't just rely on movies to tell us how to live. We need role models. Yeah. We need good professors. When I was in college, and this was in Berkeley in the early aughts, a lot of my professors were old white guys. We need more professors like you, Ken, because the people that we have are so fucking gross and terrible sometimes. And, and this kind of speaks to the imbalance in power dynamics. And it really is important to be aware of Title IX. And my first-gen students might not know what that is. And so the, all these things that we have to really remind ourselves and had to remind my colleagues to do. Yeah, it's it's a lot of work. I was I was thinking about mentorship and, and how how to reach out because when I was a kid, I was thinking if when we're talking about role models and Dave mentioned this, uh, who are the adults that I have interaction with other than my family members? It's really by teachers. And I've had plenty of bad teachers. I have plenty of really mean, uncaring teachers, but I had also good professors and good teachers. And so I, I think we have to think through as Asian Americans, how can we help the next generation? How can we help kids? How, how can we foster a place where we can mentor each other? Yeah. You know, having these conversations is a good start. Because Dave, in your outline, you had a lot of stuff like, uh, do you feel like Asian Americans or Asian women are specifically targeted? 
either in academia or elsewhere? And like, I think the obvious answer is yes. It's just not talked about. It's totally scrubbed from the media. Maybe this is a good way to transition to like these other topics because you wanted to talk about um, stereotyping and like the Annie Lee case. Yeah, yeah. We chatted about this a little bit and uh, the Annie Lee case. Like when I heard about the Ying Ying case, it kind of like uh, instantly connected in my mind to the Annie Lee case. And, and if people don't know, this was in 09, I believe. Uh, she was a, a Yale lab technician, a doctorate student, and she was brutally murdered by a fellow student so like days before her wedding. Uh, he was a white dude. You know, and other cases of like the NorCal rapists and, and the three university gynecologists that I found in USC, UCLA, and Columbia, each have very similar patterns of abuse over decades. And it was uh, a lot of times, yeah, the victims were Asian women. And in many places, that was scrubbed from the media. And I just wonder why that is. Like, it's because the readership is usually is there. They're trying to get more readership clicks and whatnot. Um, and also the other question is like, why are they targeting Asian Americans? Uh, it's just terrible. It just freaks me out. <laughs> Honestly, it just seems like this. It's so prevalent. It's like almost everyone I know, any any female I know, like can talk about the sexual assault or the specter of sexual assault, you know, hanging over them. You know, as, as a father of a daughter, it just it just freaks me out. And like, yeah, I just wish we could. I could do something about it. Uh, I guess shine a light on it. Yeah, it's so crazy. Annie Lee, days before she went missing or she was murdered, um, she had actually written an article about the increased crime rate on campus and how to protect yourself. So it wasn't like she wasn't aware of her surroundings. She was aware of what she was aware of, but people just aren't aware of how how vulnerable you are as an Asian American her article was focused on petty crime, theft, you know, muggings, stuff that people will report on and stuff that is like more talked about in the open. But what happened to her, she was killed by somebody she knew, right? Somebody who worked in her lab or like in a, a lab next to hers or something. Yeah, they had direct contact. They knew each other. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how aware she was of like what he was really thinking, you know, like his like crazy obsession with her. But I think this was just a blind spot, you know, like you know to look behind your back while you're walking in the dark outside at night. But when you're like just in your lab, you know, doing your work, I don't think people ever think about that. Like you're just focused on your work. Yeah. So I think it's a it's a blind spot, and it's because it's not reported in the media. Everything is deracialized in the media, but I think it's something that we need to talk about more, especially if you can talk to your kids about, and maybe like Kin can talk to, you know, his kids and his students about, and like just raise consciousness, like community consciousness. I think that is a really good first step in how to address these problems. You were talking about the Berkeley rapist, you know, and he was this guy who I think he raped like 20 women in over the, or maybe like 11 women or something over the course of 20 years. I'm, I can't remember. 
uh, he was he worked at UC Berkeley. He was like actually like a security specialist too. So it was just like insidious, like the fox, you know, running the the hen house. And like he would like um, case uh, Asian American women. He would follow them around and he would learn their tendencies and then attack when they were most uh, vulnerable. And it was like a it was a pattern. Um, it's just just terrible. And they finally caught him through DNA. Like he was dormant for, you know, like a decade or so, but only through DNA were they able to like, you know, trace it back to him. Um, Cause he, right. he was so good at covering his tracks because he knew what to do. He was a security guy. Yeah. Okay. I just looked it up. It's um, between 1991 and 2006. Mm-hmm. They caught him recently. Like he was sentenced recently. Yeah. I think it was very recent. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I was in Berkeley, you know, like 2004 through 2006. So, like, like I was an undergrad when he was active, and I don't remember anything from the school saying like, "Look out, uh, Asian women or all women." And I feel like uh, it kind of reminds me of that part in the movie where. The killer, he actually went to the UIUC counseling center and said, I have these plans on murdering people, <laughs> you know? And I think they, they just didn't do anything, right? Yeah, yeah, or not enough. Yeah, yeah, it's so terrible. I, th- I, think, I yeah. think I read somewhere that, like, the person he was speaking with was, like, an intern. And then that person, obviously, is kind of junior, but that person did reach out to someone more senior, and they just never reacted, you know, reacted fast enough. I mean, I think that that confession happened like a couple of months before the murder. There was yeah. that. And then there was the, that he tried to pick up another girl that same day before that. It was a white girl, but she, and she reported it to campus police, but again, they didn't move fast enough. Right. They didn't, it seemed like they didn't connect the two cases at all or something. But it was the same day, you know, like, it seems so weird that there was just like, either no communication or like, people didn't put two and two together. They in the movie, they show all this, like video surveillance footage, like, oh, we realized she was here. And then we realized that, you know, she missed her bus. And then we saw this footage of her being picked up by a car. But like, there was a police report filed that same morning. And they don't talk about that at all. Or like, it seemed like it didn't play a big part in the investigation, but it seems like it should have, or like way more than, um, like, I think if they had looked at that report, they probably wouldn't have wasted so much time um, thinking that it was a missing person case when it was an abduction. It's like, they didn't, I don't know. I don't know why they didn't, think that it might be an abduction. But I think also that if people realized how much Asian women are targeted, they would, you know, because like the NorCal rapist, a lot of the reports on him are completely deracialized. You've found three instances of gynecologists at universities who were targeting Asian women and like assaulting them especially international students and the reports on them are also deracialized. Yeah. And so I think it's just not in anybody's head to assume that when something happens to an Asian woman, it's an attack, you know, like that Annie Lay case too. 
she was just missing, right? I don't think anybody even thought that she was murdered. It was just like, oh, maybe she ran out on her wedding or something like that. That wasn't in my head at all when I was younger, but I think it probably should have been because there were a bunch of times when I was in college and grad school where men would just follow me around either on the street or, well, so for example, when I was in undergrad, this guy just like approached me on the street and started asking me questions. And I think he asked me out and I said no. And then we went our separate ways. And a few weeks later, he found me again, kind of on the same street. And he just like kept trying to talk to me. And then I started avoiding that general area when I went to school. But I think one time I was like really stressed out and I forgot to avoid that area. And then he found me again and he just wouldn't stop following me. So I went into this ice cream store because I was just like, okay, just like fucking leave. And then he went in there and I'm just standing inside the ice cream store and I was just like, I don't know what to do. And I was just like looking at the one employee in there who was like standing behind the counter and he was like is is this guy bothering you (laughs) he was just standing there and he wouldn't fucking leave and then he goes oh it's fine she's my girlfriend oh my god and i was like what the fuck so i i didn't say anything but like i just stayed in there until he left i think i probably bought an ice cream or something and ate it (laughs) and then (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I waited a while and then I I went home. Jeez. Uh-huh. Another time, this was in Boston in grad school. I was like on the campus bus or something and then another student started talking to me. It wasn't it was just like chit-chat, you know, like bus chit-chat or whatever. And then later on, I think not that day, but another day, he like just randomly showed up in my building, like outside my lab, just kind of like pacing around. I was like, and then he was like, Oh, funny rent running into you, you know? And I was like, Oh, okay. haha. He's in an adjacent program. So maybe he has a collaborator here, but then he kept doing it. And I was like, what the hell, you know? Um, and I don't think he was collaborating with anybody on my floor because I never saw him like in another lab talking to anybody else. I was also, there was another time, like he would do this for years. It was like probably like a two year period where he would just like show up randomly um, just to say hi. It seems harmless. But then another time I was teaching, you know, I was a TA in a whole ass other building, like on the other side of campus. And then one time as I was walking out of the class, he was like also there to, and I was just like, how the fuck did you even know that I was teaching this class in this, this area of campus? It was just really creepy. You know, I was thinking about it. My lab that I was in, the building was locked after hours, but all the buildings on the campus are connected. And if you have a campus ID, you can unlock all of them, you know? And my lab, the doors were, you could lock them if you were staying late at night. You close them and lock them. 
but there was an adjoining lab. There was like another lab with no doorway. Like there was an open doorway between that. So you could still come in from the other lab, right? So it's like, let's say I was working in my lab alone um, at 11 p.m. And I had locked all the doors to my lab, but there was somebody working or they just in the adjoining lab and they either were there and didn't lock the doors or they just forgot to lock the doors. Like somebody could easily just come in and murder me if they wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's just yeah. nothing I could do about it. That's so, so scary. It's, it's terrible. Like you're, I, I hear you like laughing, but it's like, like a nervous laughter. Cause it's like, it, it seems so innocuous then like just maybe just a dude had a crush on you, but like it could really easily turn into something sinister. Like you don't know. Right. I, f- I feel like there needs to be like more awareness, like for, on both sides, like uh, for like young women, like yourself, like how to protect yourself, who to call. And then also like the universities, the agencies to build structures and place systems to like protect young ladies, like some kind of, you know, like alert system or something, you know, it's just, it's, it's way too tenuous right now. It's way too easy to, to just snatch a lady. It's terrible. Right. And like, cause I think back then it's only in retrospect that I realized how crazy and scary it was because when I was there, you know, I wasn't thinking about these weird ass guys. I was like stressed out about my work and like all the real life stuff that I have to deal with. These people were just like on the periphery. So they're kind of like in my blind spot anyway. And they wouldn't show up like every day, you know, it wasn't like enough for me to be like scared on a daily basis. It was just like every few weeks or months or something, you know, when I saw them, I'd be like, that's weird. But then they'd leave and then I would just forget about it. I would go back to what I was stressing out about at the time. And I think that's the kind of situation where if somebody wanted to murder you, they would be able to because it's just below your radar. Yeah, you're just working in a lab. We don't want to put all the, I guess, responsibility on women to say, hey, every time you go to the parking lot, you better watch out for your life because someone can punch you and drive you away. And I, I, I think it's just, it adds to what we were talking about, rape culture, and how no doesn't mean no, and men are consistently taught to be persistent to win over women. And I don't know, Dave, if you remember that in Stai, we, we, were, we, we saw this happen in Stai. We saw a guy stalk oh, yeah, for yeah. a few years. You know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he never took no for an answer, and this is this is what, this is how how scary it is rape culture to 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 be persistent to. I mean, the, I think this dating culture of what what it means to to win over women, yeah, that's really toxic. And then there's more stalking going on because of the internet. So, so it's <laughs> the kind of the tools we have to to stalk and find information to find out where you were, Diana, and at what lab and and what what part of building and which street that you're on and all that is scary. And even with someone in, in the ice cream store clerk that, that recognized, right. That, that clerk recognized you were probably in trouble. And, and yet that dude had the audacity, just outright lie. Yeah. I was, I was so pissed about that. The person behind the counter, he could kind of tell that 
something was not right. So he was just like, oh, okay. But he, you know, kept an eye on me, I guess. And I think that's why that guy left eventually. But man, it's just like so crazy. And I think that's what happened with Annie, Annie Lee, right? Because she was like aware of the petty crime and the muggings um, on campus. But, you know, that guy who killed her was probably in her blind spot. Like she just didn't expect some classmate, some lab mate to be insane like that. I don't know what, I guess I don't really know what my purpose necessarily of like sharing these stories is. I don't think it's like useful to just be paranoid about everyone because that's a lot of mental energy that you have to expend that you're not putting into your work. Like it's exhausting to have to be looking over your shoulder when you're already stressed out about like uh, experiments or like publishing or just, you know, all of the microaggressions that you have to deal with. No, Diana, I think there's so much value in you sharing, sharing your stories and sharing how prevalent it was. Like I, I think, yeah, you don't want to be in that constant paranoid state. It's just going to fray your mind. But I think that's, that's the status quo right now. Right now we're just, it's just like putting it all on the girls to be cognizant of it, to travel in packs and constantly be checking in with each other, you know, but I, I think it needs to be more out there. Like they got to, you know, have, have awareness with the, the universities and they maybe got to teach it in like high school, junior high school, like yeah, kids, how to like properly brace courtship, you know, like it's not okay to like stalk someone. Yeah, but of course that goes back to the funding issue again, because all of those support services require money that the schools don't have. I think there's value in the international community hearing about this stuff or just like recognizing that how big of an issue is because if the international students are funding so many of the universities and the whole academic system in the US, well, you know, like a lot of those people have more power to demand better services for themselves. A lot of those international students who were assaulted by the gynecologist, they were fucking pissed. They were posting their stories all over Facebook. The universities, USC, I know at least, tried to cover it up for years. And finally, the news broke. But there should be more international pressure to for these universities to look out for the very students that are funding them. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, yeah, for sure, money talks. So if there's pressure there, yeah, that, that'll motivate uh, those, you know, those in power. And lawsuits. There's plenty of lawsuits filed against uh, higher education institutions for protecting rapists and not believing women when they make a claim. Um, so as someone, that, as an employee in higher education, we have to follow Title IX regulations, and that includes reporting what we suspect is sexual assault and harassment. We actually actually have to tell our students that um, certain things you tell us, we cannot hold in confidence because of, of our legal responsibilities. And that includes reporting something we, we think, like even if it happens outside campus, because you are a college student and I'm your professor, I'm gonna have to report it to the Title IX uh, person in our, in, our, in our institution. So, so legally, that, that's where change happens. 
when you when you uh, sue the school, and then that's when they're trying to cover them up, cover up the scandal. But ultimately, they they have they don't want to keep getting sued and and losing money. Yeah, I think the story is really powerful, actually, Diana. I, I think it's powerful because before we even say how, how who it helps, it just re- just remember that that you you remember these stories because they are traumatic. These are not pleasant events. And to retell them publicly, uh, to share it, actually is a way for you to deal with that pain and, and kind of gives you more ownership over that experience. And so, so there's importance in telling that story for yourself. And, and I want to acknowledge that. And then the second thing is that it's clear that you're not the only one experiencing these patterns. And so uh, it's helpful for listeners that to, be, to hear it over and over again. It's not enough. Thank you. Yeah, I hope um, international students or like families who uh, want to send their kids here learn about the legal system and what your rights are before you come here. If if they knew how things were here, they just would stay in China. <laughs> you know, it's not actually better. I don't know. I don't know. I think people still have this like. Uh, rose-tinted glasses when I think about the U.S. So that's definitely part of it. Right. We want to give them a fair description of what they're going to get themselves into, have more information to make that choice whether or not they want to spend time here getting an education. They might still come here despite it, but at least they have that information. Yeah. It's an informed choice instead of basically a coerced one. A lot of people have said that the U.S.'s biggest number one export is propaganda. Sounds right. They've always, it's propaganda to themselves too, as kind of a beacon of democracy and freedom around the world, protecting the world with the biggest military, right? Yeah. That's propaganda (laughs) and and the world isn't buying it because the, uh, the rest of the world is reading their history books, whereas Americans are not, or... Uh, American textbooks are so pathetic in kind of washing away the blood and the massacre and all all the things that we did as a colonizing power. Yeah, I I think uh, another uh, thing we can tackle is also like breaking stereotypes. Like I feel like uh, the reason why the Asian women are being targeted by these predators, uh, cowards, because they think like, uh, you know, there's that stereotype that Asians are docile and they can take advantage and, you know, they won't, you know, we won't fight back and whatnot. So, uh, again, I think that, like, that's where representation matters. If we, like, come out more and, and we share our stories, was, they'll see that we're, like, 100% like full people and we could, we can fight back, man. We can totally fight back. And, and, you know, we want to show them, give them the fear that they can't mess with us. You know, like, I got got some strong women in my life, like my wife, my mother-in-law. I'll I'll admit it, I am legit scared of them sometimes. So even my little (laughs) two-year-old, so she's turning into a little tiger. So, you know, if these these jerks knew what these ladies are capable of, they would be scared, man. Seriously. In the documentary, I think the killer was saying how he was surprised by her will to live or something. Yeah, that pissed me off. I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah, they think of us as these just like barely sentient blow-up dolls, basically, or like robots, you know. They're surprised 
that we're human beings and we want to fucking live. That's so tragic. I think it's extra scary that he found ideas and insight on how to do it, how to kidnap and sexually abuse and kill someone from forums online. That it's easy for pockets to find this information online and spread this best practices. That is horrific. For me, I'm thinking about the toxic masculinity aspect too. And I I don't think Asian males are exempt. I I know plenty of uh, Asian American males that uh, kind of feed into this toxic masculinity. That it's about counting notches on your belt of how, how many women you can win. It's about treating women as objects. And, and I think something about college campuses intensifies that with the party culture. So it's, it's mind blowing to me that one of the big draws to pick a college that you attend is how good are the parties there. And, but that's how American colleges are. That's how they sell themselves, right? It's not, it's not primarily a place of education. Do you that when you were younger, do you feel like, like you had a toxic phase or anything? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say that every guy, probably every woman too, has like a, like a slut phase, you know, they just want to like explore their, uh, sexual, uh, abilities as much as they can. And definitely there was a phase for me where I was like, try to, um, hook up with as many girls as possible for sure. Um, but I always also think like to, to your other point, Ken, like, that toxic masculinity like it's always going to be there as long as like there's an imbalance of power like too many dudes in power too many white dudes in power like just look at facebook it the whole conceit of that idea was just to compile a book of pretty faces you know at harvard you know it's it's completely nasty we need you know more women in power for sure yeah toxic masculinity i have to think about what it takes to change people out of it and, and that is something I'm going to have to think through. I remember definitely the, that the peer pressure in high school and my time in undergrad was steeped with a lot of peers looking for, I forgot what was the lingo at that time, like game or hunting. I forgot what it was, like like dating coach. I forgot, that, like all these things that, so before internet forums were big, they had uh, magazines like Maxim magazines and how, how to uh, trick a woman into dating you and things like that or to trick a woman into the bedroom like a pickup artist, pick-up artist kind of stuff. Right. that's right yeah. yeah and had shows on this right mtv had shows on pickup artists feeding lines into people's do the earbud like how, how to kind of score so i think there's the power imbalance and then there's also just like whenever i hear people talking about sex in the u.s it's it's conflated with domination. And I think that's the toxic aspect because it's not about like sexuality or like exploring anything, you know, it's about how many people, how many bitches can I dominate? I think that's the problem is that it's just conflated. And there's a sense of competition um, among the toxic men and, and trying to say, outdo one another. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's kind of a commodification of like, you know, imperialist culture. Mm -hmm. I think that having better role models, better male role models for like young Asian guys is a good step. When you're 
a kid growing up and your dad is first gen, you're constantly seeing your parents humiliated. And I think that traumatizes, traumatizes you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So much rape culture in, in popular media. And I think Asian men have a special burden to bear because of how they're emasculated in U.S. media. So while Asian females are hyper-sexualized, Asian men are treated as eunuchs and thus have no shot at the romantic lead. There's data behind that from dating websites looking at matches between uh, races that OKCupid has collected, and you can look it up. It's definitely not a fluke that there's a clear pattern of racism. Yeah, but the real reason behind it is like for white men to dominate men of color or like to dominate Asian men. It's more of an issue between groups of men than an issue between men and women. Yes, mm. yes. That, that it's not okay for men to cry. That, uh, Dave, you, you shared that article. Do you want to tell me about, uh, do you want to tell the listeners? Huffington Post by Van Jones about the, the mothers writing the Oh, book. yeah, yeah, Van Jones. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, so the story was like uh, recently after uh, it, it was called that uh, Biden uh, won the election. Van Jones, he's a commentator on it. He just like openly wept. I think it was also on CNN too. Like uh, they wrote an article, black father, uh, Van Jones is black. Uh, a black father uh, wrote an article uh, about that and, and how it helped validate his own son's like connection with his emotions and being so expressive with his, with his emotions. Nowadays, more so than when I grew up, there's less of a stigma for guys that, that choose to emote. And it's it's a way healthier. Like if you're repressed, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna find other outlets. You're probably gonna drink. You're probably gonna do drugs. That's probably why you know there's so much uh, alcoholics back in the day. So yeah, I, I feel like that's part of it. Also, like to your point, Diane, about role models. Yeah, we definitely need more good male role models that are willing to support females. You know, not get in their way uh, as as they come up. You know, so we have great strong you know female uh, role models as well and little boys can can see that too and and realize that hey man you know mommy and sister they can be you know bosses too you know, let's let's treat them with the equal respect that we treat you know daddy and all the misters yeah that's right um any final thoughts about finding ying ying or anything else we've talked about you know, it's, it's, it was a terrible story, but I wanted to, to focus on like the positivity of what I saw in uh, this beautiful story. And Ken, Ken and I would be uh, pretty, go, pretty uh, cynical parents if we didn't feel hopeful in the younger generation. Uh, so I just want to mention that like, I love the idea of uh, embracing Chineseness. You know, I came upon an earlier pod and an article that you guys did with uh, Emily Dong. I just loved it so much, the clarity in her voice. And I, I feel the same with uh, Jenny Shi. You know, I think there's so much value in not trying to be white or white adjacent. You know, I don't think we as Asian Americans should aspire to kind of replace who's on top of this hierarchy of domination, but to seek to collaborate. You know, growing up, I never wanted to be white, but I didn't want to disavow my Chineseness. But I also I didn't have the vocabulary and ideas to express like how how proud I was to be Chinese and, and what you know, I could share how, how I could improve uh, uh, America. And now I think I'm, I'm seeing more of that opportunity to share our values and improve America and that I have more of those tools in my toolkit. And I feel like, 
younger generation listening to this and having more exposure to these ideas uh, can have that too. Just how much better would America be if more Americans adopted some Asian values like, you know, collectivism and compassion, empathy, especially in this era of COVID. Um, so I just want to say, like, I, I love what Emily Dong wrote. Uh, I love what Jenny she's showing us. Uh, you know, it's, it's what to do instead of what not to do. You know, be proud of who you are, your parents and their values. You know, Chinese have been around and doing this for millennia. And uh, it's just up to us to adapt it to this time and place. So I want to challenge the listeners and young folks and everyone to to do that. You know, I think that's exactly what we need to do in this in this crazy times. Thank you so much for this. Thanks, kid, man. It's always good to talk with you, bro. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening. Again, Finding Yingying premieres December 11th, and you can find more information at www.findingying.com. Please rate us, Escape from Plan A, on your favorite podcast platforms and donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash plan A mag. It's also Dave's birthday today. So happy birthday, Dave.